Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Head of Investments, Nikki Eggers, talks to Sophie Traherne, Senior Political Expert, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Hao Ranwe, Senior Investment Strategist, about the latest cabinet reshuffle and what that might mean for the coming budget. The team also tackles some of the pros and cons of infrastructure spending. Welcome to this week's Word on the Street. I'm joined by a very authoritative looking panel today. Uh, Sophie's here to cover the latest in UK politics. We've got Haran to give us some insights on the UK economy and, well, Will, you've got the rest. I'll Markets, try and do something. Yeah, something. Fi- find something. Um, but we've got quite a bit to get through, so let's let's get going. So Sophie, last week we had the Cabinet reshuffle. I guess reshuffle is the polite term, isn't it? We, we were wondering whether it'd be the Valentine's Day massacre. Um, but there were a few surprises, weren't there? Yeah, so reshuffle last Thursday started off a bit slow. Uh, but then around lunchtime, things became a bit more interesting. There were several tweets from political commentators suggesting that the Chancellor had been in with the Prime Minister for over an hour. And then the news broke that Sajid Javid had actually resigned as Chancellor after refusing to replace his team of special advisors. Uh, special advisors are, or SPADs as they're known, are the political uh, uh, advisors, the team around the minister, rather than the independent civil service advisors. And they're usually the, the minister's main political council, the, the link to the to the political party. So for the prime minister to ask the chancellor to sack his whole team of advisors is fairly big ask. And it's also worth remembering that the, the last couple of months, there had been supposedly some tension between Sajid and the prime minister over spending decisions in the run up to the budget. But uh, nevertheless, it was still a bit of a surprise and uh, very much added to the drama of the reshuffle. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, swiftly appointed Rishi Sunak to replace uh, Sajid, promoting him from Chief Secretary to the Treasury. And also for the first time, there will be an integrated team of uh, Number 10 and Treasury advisors showing that Number 10 sort of really increasing their influence over, over Whitehall and uh, really fundamentally changing the dynamic between the two buildings. The Treasury, you know, for decades has been the most powerful department in Whitehall and at times under previous chancellors has been fiercely independent. So it'll be interesting to see how this changes under this new dynamic. Uh, I guess quickly to note other changes in the reshuffle, uh, replacement of Andrea Leadsom as business secretary uh, by Alok Sharma, who's also been main president of COP26, so the UN Climate Change Conference, and I suspect that he'll need to, to focus on that as a as a priority, given it isn't far away. We also saw new secretaries of state in some departments, DEFRA, uh, the Culture, Media and Sport Department as well. Uh, equally, there were some straightforward reappointments, MOD, DIT, Housing, Communities and Local Government all had their secretaries of state returned. And of course, Michael Gove remained in place in the Cabinet Office, sitting at the, the heart of government, um, and as well as Brexit, he takes responsibility for constitutional reform. So things like House of Lords reform, judicial review, the union. So it's so a big brief for him. And I should also mention there are a host of new ministers at the more junior level. So showing that number 10 are looking at the pipeline of talent and, and particularly for, for female ministers. So last week wasn't the big shakeup of the machinery of government that was briefed over Christmas. And it wasn't necessarily the, the Valentine's Day massacre you referenced in your question. But this doesn't mean that a shakeup of Whitehall is off the table for good. And I think in general, number 10 will probably be pleased with the new arrangements with the Treasury. Yeah. And so, so I mean, for us, 
you know, as markets uh, observers, um, the Chancellor is clearly a, a key a key person in the political lineup. Do we know much about Rishi Sunak? I mean, obviously, there's quite a bit around social media, around his background. He's obviously very highly thought of by the Prime Minister. Um, but you know that 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 tension, as you said, in the past between Number Ten and Number Eleven. Um, does it feel this time like like we really do have a a chancellor in name only or or chino um or or you know what what's what's the reading of the runes yeah he's he's definitely well thought of by the pm he's he's seen as capable and loyal he was one of the first um uh, to come out uh, to support boris johnson during uh, his leadership race to succeed theresa may and in fact it was a joint article with the current housing secretary robert jenrick and the newly appointed culture secretary oliver dowden uh, backing boris that was seen as a kind of major win for for boris johnson's campaign showing that he had support of the the kind of young rising stars of the Conservative Party. And it's also worth remembering that he represented the Conservative Party during the seven-way debate in the general election campaign and he supported leave in the EU referendum, so he's seen as a committed Brexiteer. And this is all really fairly impressive uh, given that, you know, he was only elected in 2015. Uh, he took uh, William Hague's constituency in Yorkshire when, when William Hague stood down uh, and he's only held a few ministerial roles, so this is quite an impressive rise. Um, and, you know, his early priorities will very much be delivering a successful budget on the 11th of March and delivering on the government's levelling up agenda. So really focusing on those Northern and Midlands voters who, who went to Tory in December. He's yeah. a Star Wars geek, isn't he? Uh, supposedly. <laughs> yeah, well, Sajid was Star Trek, apparently, and he is Star Wars. Indeed. So it's the sci-fi. Uh... Sci-fi, yeah, he's got his own lightsaber. Oh, so very said, good. Yeah, I think. Doesn't everyone? Yes, I do. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> to keep the children under control. Yeah, Haran's looking at that. These maybe, people are sad. <laughs> My children don't listen to any other authority than Darth Vader. So, yeah. so, so, so just on that, I mean, obviously, um, you mentioned there about, um, you know, clearly the, 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 the whole sort of dynamic around the March the 11th budget. We're, we're obviously waiting um, for that in earnest. Um, clearly, Haran, I know that you are sort of keeping a watching eye on that potential for increased government spending that's that's an area that um that you've that you've written about but i spotted that will may have tried to steal your thunder on linkedin got to try um, and lay claim to some of, work plagiarism <laughs> going on yeah, in the team exactly. there um but but it was an excellent excellent article Haran. um but just when it comes to um increased spending do you see that as something that that we can we can expect to look forward to to more governmental um, ease coming through the fact that that we have a, a new chancellor that might be a little bit more led by number 10. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think uh, in general, it, it underscores a wider debate uh, taking place within the economics profession uh, today. Now, uh, historically, economists have always emphasized the need for governments to be fiscally prudent, to rein in on spending, etc. But uh, today, however, we're seeing more and more economists uh, calling for developed governments, uh, not just the UK, but in the US and Germany as well, uh, to spend more. Or at the very least, we, we see more and more people uh, asking for fiscal policy to play a much larger role in the economy today. And there, there are a couple of, re of reasons uh, for this shift. Uh, the first reason is that uh, growth and inflation has generally been lackluster, not just in the UK, but throughout much of the developed world, despite near zero interest rates. So this signals to economists that low interest rates alone just aren't doing enough to stimulate the economy. But 
since interest uh, interest rates are so low already, they're near zero, uh, there's not much room to take rates uh, lower mm-hmm. when you think about it. So because of that, it's been argued that fiscal policy uh, is the so-called only game in town, and it should start to take up more of the slack here from monetary policy. And uh, the second reason for that uh, is that governments can borrow at near zero cost today because interest rates are so low. And so governments, uh, especially the UK or Germany and the US, uh, should be taking advantage of these low borrowing costs uh, to fund infrastructure and climate change related projects uh, that provide long term benefits to their economies. Uh, you've also, on a more abstract note, you, you also have proponents of um, fiscal spending that argue that since developed governments like the UK uh, can print money, they can technically never go bankrupt. Now, historically, one major risk of overspending or printing money to fund extra government spending has been hyperinflation. But with inflation so low today, however, uh, proponents argue that that risk has been greatly reduced. Uh, so that leaves governments with more room to increase spending. So that's the general argument uh, that's been driving a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of it today. And I know, um, Will, we didn't really get the chance to talk about HS2 last week, but you know, as Haran saying about governments perhaps you know, it might not be the worst idea in the world to be to be borrowing at these low rates and and creating um, or, or, or focusing on big infrastructure project projects. Um, I know you have views on these. What what perhaps not HS2 specifically, but Sophie but... always looks very nervous when you say <laughs> I have views on this. Yeah. Strong views. Don't worry. No, 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 no. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think that the infrastructure side is a fascinating story to me. I mean, I, because it seems like such an obvious um, positive, particularly when, you know, let's say your transport infrastructure, you know, for example, is wobbly. Um, and this is particularly the case, like, I mean, as Haran says, when you can borrow uh, next to nothing, um, you know, as a political leader uh, making the decision, you get something new and shiny that you can even name after yourself if you fancy. Um, employment goes up, you know, everyone's a winner. Um, however, the case um, for transport infrastructure, and I think this is a really important point, um, has kind of, you know, you've seen dramatically diminished returns to investment over the last couple of hundred years, um, primarily because of the existence of plausible, alter- you know, transport alternatives. So, um, you know, shaving minutes off commuter times and travel times is simply not that valuable in many senses. And there is, you know, there's a bit of a, a, a sort of academic support here. There's a very famous paper by um, Nobel economist uh, Robert Fogel who looked at exactly this. Um, and he argued that the opening of the Erie Canal in 1821, I'm sorry, uh, in the US um, brought enormous value because um, the inland transportation options at the time were so dismal. So in the early 19th century, it cost as much to ship goods 30 miles over land as to send them across the entire Atlantic Ocean. Yet the very existence of the canals, and this is the point, materially reduced the economic benefit of the later rail systems. Um, Amazing technological breakthrough, though that was, because there was already some transportation Mm -hmm. option. And that really is the the point, I guess. And Japan is a more recent example here. You know, so some people have argued that between 1991 and 2008, they spent, I think, $6.3 trillion uh, on various fancy things. Um, And yes, they've got some very fast trains and some uh, incredible, uh, you know, the longest suspension bridge in the world. I think someone will have to confirm that for me, uh, whether that's still the case. But it's hard to argue that productivity in the economy has changed. There's no counterfactual, you know, Mm -hmm. what they what happened when they if they didn't spend that money but i think the point is that we have to be quite wary of you know very positive claims made for infrastructure spending that's no direct reference to hs2 but it's just about the just to set sophie's mind at ease a little bit so so hence how ran you you were sounding a bit skeptical um uh, around whether whether we'll see a big boost in spending on 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 the back of this in the developed world 
Yeah, I think uh, I'll echo Will's point that there is uh, a, a large school, uh, a large number of people that hold a certain wariness about the efficacy of government spending. Mm. Um, it, I would agree that there, are, there is a good, uh, a lot of theoretical appeal for fiscal policy to play a larger role in the economy. But uh, unfortunately, real life is much more um, messier than that. The, the truth is, historically, uh, governments have, haven't always been uh, the most efficient users of capital. Now, if all of that borrowed money is wasted by building bridges to nowhere or it's sort of used to serve uh, short-term political goals, then you might just end up with more debt without with little growth to show for. And so you, you'll end up leaving the rest of, uh, the, rest of the economy uh, worse off. Uh, I think on top of that wariness, there, there are significant political constraints uh, that limit that actually limit the amount of additional spending a government can do. So the most famous example is Germany, which has this so-called black zero policy that commits it to maintaining a balanced budget at all times. Uh, other European countries in the, uh, have uh, wider euro area fiscal rules, like the growth and stability pact, that, limit, that actually limit the amount of spend, uh, spending uh, their, their governments can actually do. So even... If, uh, even if this, uh, these political constraints are uh, overcome, uh, it, it actually takes a lot of time for these fiscal packages uh, to be negotiated and then uh, rolled through into, into legislation. Um, it's also widely accepted that the, the extra fiscal spending, they tend to be more effective when the economy is in a weak state. Now, the global economy is still doing relatively okay so far. So uh, that, there is an argument to be made that uh, you're better off just holding off on that spending and then saving up that fiscal headroom uh, for the next recession. And so that gives you more bang for your buck in terms of each, of each uh, dollar spent. Keep your powder so, dry. Yeah, I yeah. think short of a deep global recession uh, i think um i think th there probably isn't enough political will to muster in order to see some sort of uh, imminent large uh, fiscal splurge from developed governments today and and just sticking with you Haran, if i if i may i know we had quite a bit of uk economic data out this week um is there anything new that we've learned off the back of that um you know as we as we're awaiting this budget um mm. any any sort of new insights that we've got from the data that 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 we should be wary of yeah, or so, happy about. <laughs> well, we had a couple of data releases uh, from the UK this week. Uh, for example, we had the labour market report, which showed that the unemployment rate is uh, still standing at 3.8%, which is the lowest in four decades. Uh, so the UK labour market uh, still appears to be in a good place so far. Uh, we also had inflation data, which came in a bit higher than expected, but um, inflation is still at uh, core inflation is still standing at 1.6%, which is well below the Bank of England's uh, target of 2%. So I don't think it really changes the overall macro picture much. Uh, I think the bottom line here is that uh, UK data has generally been improving uh, after the elections last year. Uh, most of the numbers uh, highlight a pickup in consumer and business confidence uh, since uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, uh, his victory removes some of the Brexit uncertainty hanging out, uh, hanging in the economy. Now, admittedly, though, not all of the uncertainty has gone away. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, with the recent coronavirus outbreak uh, tr throwing up a temporary sp uh, speed bump for, the, for global growth uh, this quarter, uh, I think it would be safe to characterize the UK economy as some sort of being in this sort of muddle through state. Um, yeah, growth can be higher, but uh, we aren't falling off a cliff so far, which is relatively good news good mm. reassuring <laughs> very reassuring so sophie while all of this has been going on obviously um you know we we had the 31st of jan i think we all know that um but there's been a sort of predictably noisy start to the eu uk um dance shall we call it um 
is it worth us paying much attention at this stage to what we're hearing sort of coming out of that or is it is it um is it just noise and posturing at this point yeah so worth noting that formal negotiations are expected to begin in early march mm. so yes at, at this moment there does seem to be a bit of fair bit of posturing from both sides setting out their positions ahead of these formal negotiations this week we did have a big speech from david frost the uk's brexit negotiator who um, set out essentially the uk's aspirations for its that future relationship with the eu uh, he said a few a few things of interest, including the fact that um, the UK government's uh, ambition is to secure a Canada-style agreement with the EU as soon as possible. We already knew this, Boris Johnson already talked about this, uh, but he was reiterating the point that uh, the UK is also prepared for an Australian-style free trade agreement if necessary, so essentially that trading on WTO terms. And he also talked about those uh, level playing field rules, which I think we've talked about before and you'll have read a lot about. He emphasised that the UK must be able to to set its own laws and will not accept EU supervision on level playing field issues. You know, he, he was making the point that it, it isn't, this isn't for them, for the UK, a simple negotiating position um, that they might move under pressure. It's the point of the whole project of Brexit. Uh, and finally, he also reiterated that the government will not extend the transition period. Again, we, we already knew this, um, which as a reminder is, is due to end on the 31st of December this year. There has predictably been pushback from the EU with uh, Michelle Barnier commenting that the UK cannot have the same trade deal uh, with the EU as Canada does. And he, you know, he said that although the EU was ready to offer an ambitious partnership with the UK, our particular proximity to the EU means uh, it would have to be different to that Canada deal. So both sides seemingly quite far apart at the moment. Um, but as already mentioned, this could be seen as, as, as simply posturing at this stage with the negotiations yet to formally start. And we will uh, know a bit more uh, next week when the government publishes a document setting out its position in, in much greater detail. So, Will, the other thing that's been um, attention-grabbing this week mm -hmm. has been the race to be the Democratic challenger mm -hmm. um, in the US presidential elections in November Suddenly, we're seeing um, we're seeing Michael Bloomberg, the ex New York City mayor and, and billionaire, by mm. the way. Um, he's right <laughs> up there in the national polls. Mm. Um, we gather, you know, we had the debate on Wednesday. Um, anything, anything that you're seeing coming out of that? It's gripping, isn't it? I mean, that's all we could say as viewers. It's absolutely gripping. Um, from uh, the, the sort of what we saw, there was sort of pretty mixed reviews for yeah. uh, the Bloomberg's uh, performance on last night's debate, but it'd be very interesting to see how that shows up in the polls. Um, it is a very open race still, what you can say. Um, in terms of betting markets, um, no one is current favourite to win the Democratic primaries with a 40% chance. Second place is currently Bernie Sanders with a two in five chance. Uh, and then he dropped to Joe Biden with an 11% chance, Bloomberg at 9%. Now, if you do get no one, mm -hmm. um, you then go up to, it becomes the superdelegates that decide. So you get to the Democratic convention in Milwaukee in the summer. Um, and uh, there, you know, there's 770, I think, uh, superdelegates who will decide who is to take on uh, the president is too complicated, I think, to even try and understand <laughs> at this time of day what that goes. But the process is really interesting. I think just as an aside, it's a really interesting way. Um, what you see is kind of, you know, how to try and unite various strands of political opinion on one side of the political aisle into one challenger. Um, and it, it's it's so well attended. That's the amazing thing about these kind of things. It's a really interesting uh, demonstration of democracy, I think, as an aside. And and Sophie, any any sort of professional jealousy around the UK versus the US, given what Will's just described. 
it is fascinating. I mean, yeah, yeah we, we again are just watching and, and as spectators and taking it all in because it is such a different process to how we do it in the UK. Um, and yeah, it, the fascinating that it might come down to this big convention moment, whereas in previous years it's been pretty much decided after the, the first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Super Tuesday is the big one, isn't it? I think yes. coming up. So that's March the 3rd, 2nd? Uh, yes. One of those. One of those. Early March. Yes, exactly. Early March. Yeah. Good, good. All right, but I assume the advice stays the same, which is this isn't this isn't a way for us to to trade. Um, there's no edge to be had here. Not yet. I mean, Carry so, on as so, we are. Yeah, so far to go, and it's such a you know the point remains you know that's such a long way from you know policy talk on the campaign trail to actually implemented mm. policy. Um, there's no real investment moves to make at this stage. Okay. It's just interesting as viewers, I guess. And and obviously we continue to see the headlines around COVID nineteen. We had mm. Apple. Um, Apple had a, a warning on their profits this week about their related supply chain issues. Could we be seeing anything similar coming from wider UK companies or, or elsewhere? Yeah, so I mean, with this, I mean, what you would point out is that China represents about 18 to 20% of Apple's revenue. So it is very exposed, mm. both in supply chain terms and in demand terms. Um, for the UK, uh, so I think Chinese inputs into UK exports makes about 1% of the total, with the same figure being roughly true for UK inputs into Chinese exports. So we're much, we're much less exposed directly. Um, but what you are seeing is that, you know, the Chinese economy, you may find for the first time in several decades, in about three decades, you could find a quarter on quarter contraction in Chinese output. Um, so it's it's material. The impact Which would is, be incredible given yeah. the Chinese economy has always been it's not growing. circa seven yeah, percent. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't. It's not been growing at one percent. You know what I mean? Out. So yeah, yeah, no, and and so the, and that is creating that is going to create quite a large chunk out of mm. global Q1 GDP, um, or by like quite a large chunk out of global Q1 GDP. Our, our estimation, our best guess still, um, and there's got to be significant. You know, you know, we can't be too confident about this. The data around this is obviously carries you know health warnings. Health warnings, yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, our, our best guess still is that the world economy can survive this um, bump in the road um, without being too flippant, you know, yeah. for all the people suffering on this. But, um, yeah, we still think that the global economy can continue, that this isn't the sort of the end of the economic cycle just yet. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. But it's, it's primarily that, you know, the health of the global consumer, as we talked about last time, particularly the U.S. consumer. Any changes in asset allocation? We have actually just re uh, recently um, reduced our developed equity, our developed world um, stock exposure a little bit. Um, and that's really of a function of it. It's done very well. Um, so we sort of, you know, banking some profits there. We feel the opportunity is less obvious tactically. But we still think that there is um, more to go for in emerging markets on a kind of six to 12 month view. So that's still mm -hmm. kind of, you know, we're still uh, got a little bit of risk in the tactical portfolio, I think is the way that I would put it. Um, we're still betting that the cycle continues moderately. Yeah, so your your medium term allocation is still very much yeah. um, exposed to, to equities. To the growth of the world, yeah. very much. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, true. Good. Well, thanks very much for joining me this week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.